Okay, uh, so I have the distinct privilege of being joined today by Professor Johan Furi. Uh, Prof, it's a wonderful privilege to talk to you today. Thank you so much for making the time. It's great to be here for that. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to talk to you again. Uh, it's been a while since we last spoke. And yeah, after the last time we spoke, I just thought we'd uh, redeem ourselves with another conversation. Uh, so yeah, it is a wonderful, wonderful privilege to talk to you. Um, you know, Prof, I've been thinking um, ever since the end of the World Cup, and hence I wear the t-shirt I'm wearing today. Um, you know, I've been wondering if you still feel after watching that World Cup or after hearing about the results of the World Cup, uh, if you think we should still be crying for Argentina. Well, uh, there's some interesting news out of Argentina, I think even this week, uh, about the idea of a, a common currency with, with Brazil. And, and my suspicion is uh, that that would indeed lead to, to more tears. Um, <laughs> certainly, I'm very happy for, for Messi and Argentinians in winning the World Cup. I think it was a great World Cup. Uh, of course, my, my final chapter ends with you know, South Africa uh, that could have participated, the way we could have participated in the World Cup uh, required an investment, uh, you know, about a, a decade or so ago, and 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 of course we weren't there. So I still I still have hopes that in the future we will make the the necessary investments, even though you know that's a, a metaphor for for a much bigger change. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I thought it was a great World Cup, and and and. Um, and certainly in Argentina, there were tears, but this was, of course, there were tears of joy. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so for those who didn't catch uh, that pun, uh, you should probably get Prof. Johan Furi's book, uh, which is the subject of our discussion today. Uh, Prof, it's, it's wonderful, as I say, to talk to you again. Um, I, I really do think that you wrote one of the most important books um, uh, written in South Africa for as long as I can remember. And I'm not just saying this just because of this conversation, but because I genuinely believe it. You know, um, when I talk to some of my friends, I genuinely tell most of them that if they have not read your book, they need to get it because it really is one of the best things coming out of our country. It's one of our finest exports, uh, if I may say so myself. Um, but maybe for somebody who has not yet read the book, uh, I think let's touch maybe on why you decided to write uh, such a book. And you can obviously go into um, yeah some of the motivations for it and yeah what you thought you would achieve uh, out of writing mm -hmm. it. Well, first, thanks for the all the uh, recommendations. I um, probably need to pay commission at some stage, um, <laughs> but it's it is it is wonderful to hear that people are enjoying the book. I must say that's you know uh, you're not going to get rich by writing a book, so uh, the only real payback, I guess, is in the experience that the readers share with you and and how they feel that it is important. And and I obviously also believe that it is important. That's partly why I wrote the book. Um, and it's it, the motivation is very simple. It's it's uh, a course that I've been teaching for the last decade or so, even more than a decade now. And um, the realization that many of my students in in the class are not aware of uh, many of the things that I say in the book. So basically, it comes down to the fact that you know we live in an, in an era that is um, far superior to any previous era in terms of material welfare, material conditions that we live in. Uh, we, you know, relative, relatively speaking, we have much lower rates of poverty uh, than before. We have uh, much higher, um, you know, infant health, so lower infant mortality, for example, than, than any era of human history. Um, uh, and, and we have typically very romantic ideas of, of the past. And, and of course, they, you know, they are, uh, it's easy to kind of romanticize the past, right? You, you We all want to 
to escape to the rural hinterland and and spend a weekend away and and um, the simple comforts of of life seem so so attractive. But uh, I think a, a simple graph showing infant mortality in 1800 compared to 1950 compared to today should uh, you know should expose the romanticism of those ideas. It's 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 crazy to imagine that you know three or four kids in every 10 died within the first you know year of of life uh in the past and now that is is way down right it's four percent or three and a half percent and in some rich countries it's even a, a factor of 10 less right it's you know 0.3 or 0.4 so um so just that that remarkable improvement is something that we're just not aware of it's it's uh, we miss those kinds of the good news i would i guess uh, is what you can call it because we focus very much on the short run changes of our lives and these long run changes are missing. And so that's the first real motivation is to just kind of bring that to the fore and especially to South African students and written from a South African and African perspective. I think many of the books that I've read are written from kind of a, the West or European and, and American perspective. And, and of course, you know, we see the, we see the kind of clear advantages that those societies have in terms of material welfare, but but even within an African perspective, you know, the African continent is much richer than it was before. It sustains a much larger population than it did before. So clearly there is an improvement in, in just the absolute material uh, welfare of, 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 of Africans. And so that needed also to be pointed out. Uh, but I think the second thing is also about the why. So it's not only the, you know, what is improving um, or that we are, whether we're improving, but it's also why are we improving? And this is really where we base it on, where I base it on um, kind of more recent economic history literature. Um, economic history is a thriving field. It's become very empirical. So we, you know, we do research on large data sets of the past and we understand, we try and understand at least to extract the reasons for why we see these changes across time. And, um, and, and so I thought that was also needed that, you know, to be conveyed to a much bigger audience than just my classroom. And so when COVID hit, uh, I um, I started writing, and uh, within a couple of months, I, I had a I had a text. Um, so that's that's really why why the book um, came about. Uh, at the start of 2020, I would never have predicted that, that I would write a book. In fact, I had kind of a plan to write a book, but it was a very different kind of book. And so ultimately, this one was the one that that uh, materialized. Yeah, and I'm really, really glad that it did. Um, but I, I just really want to pick up on something that you uh, merely brushed upon uh, in your speaking mm -hmm. segment just now. Um, so you obviously uh, teach uh, uh, economic history at Stellenbosch University. So what has your experience been like, um, you know, teaching South African students about uh, African history? Because I would imagine that at least part of the reason you wrote the book was because you saw or you sensed that there was a knowledge deficit, as it were, among South African students and one should probably say African students more generally about the African continent and by extension by, you know, African history. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. It's it's every year it surprises me and it probably should, shouldn't surprise me that much. But so I start my class by um, asking, doing a little test, right, which is never popular. But I, I just like ask them to to I, I put a map of Africa uh on and i show them i ask them to name five african countries and these are not you know it's not mauritania it's uh which which you would probably expect many students not to know of. but this is like botswana and kenya and nigeria and senegal 
these are the kind of bigger African countries and, and you would expect many students to at least know where they are. And the average usually of that test is around one out of five. Um, many students don't even know where Botswana is. Um, and I mean, that's incredibly revealing, right? For South African students, there are of course African students in the classroom as well. Um, so non-South African uh, African students, but uh, but many South African students just have a very poor grasp of Africa, you know, as a you know, kind of a region, uh, continent, but also then uh, of course African history. And so I thought it is certainly important. I mean, these are you know BCom students, um, uh, but my sense is that that's true uh, in in you know most faculties of the university. So that's the one thing I do. And then the second test is a uh, I give them five historical episodes, and so uh, the construction of the pyramids uh, and the French Revolution and you know First World War, apartheid, these kind of things. So these are events that are pretty much spaced out of. Uh, far apart and, and you should have some sense of the chronology of, of when they occur and again like the average is is incredibly low and so there's like you know, there's no ge geographical awareness there's also no kind of time uh, horizon awareness and that to me is you know something that I think students all students should have um, and so that's partly why this course really focuses on South African African history but of course looking at kind of global developments across time through the lens of South Africa. Yeah, and that I think is one of the most important things about the book, you know, I think it, uh, as I said in the last conversation, um, it, it, it tells uh, uh, the economic history of our planet from an African uh, perspective, which I think was really, really refreshing uh, to read, certainly for me, and I know it will be for the listeners as well. Um, but I'm just curious, Prof, uh, two questions. Um, so could the knowledge deficit that we have spoken about not be unique to Stellenbosch University? Um, so it's a relatively small sample size, um, given obviously the size of the country. Um, do you think it's representative enough um, of the entire South African population? Or is it something that's unique to the kind of students that apply to a university like Stellenbosch University? Um, and then the second question, um, which I think piggybacks off of the first one that I've asked is, why do you think that might be? Um, you know, we are Africans and, you know, we should, as you quite rightly uh, point out, know the history, or at the very least, a little bit about the history of our continent, um, but we don't seem to know that much. Um, and I mean, I, I know about myself as well. I mean, I know a lot more about Western um, history than I do about African history, which is something that is embarrassing. Um, but uh, in, in a way, it's something about which I have very little control because a lot of what's in the mainstream or what's out there to read is from, um, you know, mm -hmm. Western perspective. And that's partly why I think your book is so crucial. And that's why I think people really need to get it. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm taking a bit of a detour now. Um, so yeah, the second question is, why do you think this might be? Why are African students in particular not so knowledgeable about the happenings of their mm -hmm. continent? Yeah, these are great questions. And of course, I don't have the uh, conclusive answers for them. Um, but I thought about them a lot. Uh, I think uh, regarding the first question about uh, the selection of students at Stellenbosch, uh, that might be true that it's, it's a uniquely Stellenbosch thing. I sense that it's not. Um, you know, the, the representation of my classroom have changed quite a lot over the last decade uh, from what it was in 2011 to what it is now. Um, uh, you know, the demographics of the classroom and the results stay the same. So, so that's at least some empirical evidence to suggest that that uh, these are not uh, a specific cohort. And, and remember, you know, Stellenbosch attracts some of the smartest students in, in the country. So, so my sense is that if they don't know much about the African continent, it's very unlikely that there would be another uh, 
cohort of students um, from a different uh, you know demographic background that would know much more um, uh, but that might that might be true the one thing uh, around the question of why I mean I, I you know I think you're you you alluded to the the answer and that is that we just never exposed to this um, both in the formal curriculum at schools uh, but also in, in kind of informally what we consume um, now you might say well newspapers just reflect what their readers demand to some extent that's true and 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 you know we are uh, to a large extent far more influenced by what happens in in the UK and in in the US than what happens in potentially Nigeria or Kenya and so forth um, so so there might be a very rational reason of why we care more about those countries than we you know through trade and through innovation all of the products that we use uh, are you know American designed uh, Chinese manufactured. So if there are shocks in those regions, then they affect us far more than something that, you know, some uh, conflict, for example, in, in Eritrea and Ethiopia. Um, uh, you know, now a good example is, in fact, war, right? So we, we, we know much more about the Russia-Ukrainian war than we know about the conflicts uh, in, in the Horn of Africa or, you know, Eritrea. And, um, uh, or in, in civil conflicts in Ethiopia, and and so, uh, and the reason is really because we are affected far more by the directly personally affected by the war in Ukraine than than by any conflicts in Africa. So I think there is there's some potential rational thing there, but but I also just think that it is to do with what we exposed to at school. Um, and I mean I can reflect on this very personally, right? So I'm I, I've always been very interested in Africa, but I'm pretty sure if I took my own test. When I was a second year, I would have failed it too, right? So, um, so it's not clear to me that you know I, I shouldn't be too just judgmental, uh, you know, over my students. I th I'm pretty sure that this is a very broad-based um, knowledge gap and knowledge deficit, and um, I, I just hope that we would increasingly um, see ourselves more as part of africa than than what we used to i think you know south africa is always always is probably a strong word but we've at least for the last couple of decades seen ourselves as kind of special and a unique case um and that's to do with our history but i i sense that increasingly uh as, as especially nigeria as kenya tanzania as these countries larger african countries become more powerful uh, the uniqueness of South Africa will kind of wither away and, and we'll be forced, in fact, to to see ourselves more as African um, and less as some, somehow kind of some unique um, uh, country that sits somewhere between, you know, the West um, broadly defined and, and Africa. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Um, so I, I, I think a nice segue from this would be, um, you know, the kind of progress that you speak about in the book. Um, but that, again, uh, very few people uh, who call themselves progressive, uh, I shall say, um, know about. Um, so it's very interesting to me when I talk to a lot of my friends. Um, and I think this is partly because of the uh, of our biasness toward, you know, recent news or things that we're more frequently exposed to. Because if I pick up a newspaper, a random newspaper on any random day, um, it's, it's, it's more likely that I will read a negative story than a positive story. And I think you hinted at this, not only in your speaking segment now, but in the book when you talk about the negativity bias, which I think is really, really true and very, very interesting to look at, um, especially from an economic history uh, perspective. Because when you look at economic history, it tells a completely different story. Um, mm -hmm. And 
one so different, in fact, that one who picks up the newspaper and reads it as frequently as they possibly can just cannot get more wrong. Um, so how do you think we can you know, deal with that? The fact that there's so much negative news uh, in front of us or in our midst, then there is positive news, but we have so much positive news to you know, uh, revel uh, in front of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the poverty alleviation that's happened over the past centuries is immense and it's worthy of celebration every single day. Uh, but mm-hmm. very few people actually talk about it. Uh, I'm very curious, um, you know, w- why is that the case? I, I, I have a sense that it's partly due to this negativity bias and the um, mm-hmm. you know, large production rate of newspapers that spew out uh, a lot of negative mm. information but surely there has to be a, a mm. bigger or more broader and more uh, descriptive reason as to why that might be the case do you have a reason as to why that might be yeah i think it's i mean we are humans right and we've evolved to reduce basically our risk so right if you you have to if you walk in the felt and you you know hunt together then you are more likely to react to kind of negative news. If you see a pack of lions around the corner, then then you better run. Um, uh, so, so you know, it's just we have to. We are we are this negativity bias is not something. It's not an irrational bias. It's something that's there uh, programmed into us to help us survive. Um, the I guess the you know the advantage of of most people having a negativity bias is that entrepreneurs, innovators can utilize that. And, um, you know, through deep analysis, through research, um, you know, websites like our, long, uh, our world in data um, provide you with a platform to see where this immense progress has happened. And uh, if you spend enough time understanding certain sectors, if, you, if you're aware of your potential negativity bias, or biases, there are various kinds of biases, of course, recency biases, these kind of things, um, then then you can uh, benefit from that, right? You can you can uh, uh, invest in opportunities where most people wouldn't see an opportunity. Um, part of this, the, the kind of anecdotes in my in my book is about how most uh, uh, innovators or entrepreneurs invested during kind of crises, right? These are the times when when there's uh, rapid change, and we see it at the moment as well, right? Uh, even in South Africa, when when we think about the electricity crisis, we see there's a crisis, and so there's there's rapid change. We are rapidly moving to a, a very different way of generating and distributing electricity, which is which would never have happened had there not been a crisis, right? So or not never, but it would have again taken a much longer time. Um, and it creates opportunities for for entrepreneurs and innovators to to benefit from. So, um, so I don't think the negativity bias um, is is you know wrong per se. It's there, and and I guess we have to be aware of it. Um, I guess part of it is not to just spend all your time reading, you know, newspapers, um, and and rather kind of combine that um, also obviously be aware of those potential risks um, you, you want to know about the pack of lions around the corner uh, but you also um, you want to see the kind of longer term trends and that is where uh, you know books make a big difference if you if you come across the right kind of books uh, that where where you know scholars investigate these kind of longer term more fundamental uh, uh, opportunities that you you need to be aware of. I think that's that's great. Um, and and of course, just 
you know, through also careful observation um, within society, right? We we are so pessimistic about, you know, the the, the headlines, the negative headlines. Um, uh, but again, you see also even just like walking around, you see construction, you see, uh, you know, investment, you see uh, entrepreneurs gathering in coffee shops, coming up with new innovative ideas. That's fantastic, right? But but you would never see that necessarily in a newspaper. Um, so it is just to be aware of of different sources of information. I think that that's that's critical, uh, and not be too um, you know focused on on just the on on just the headlines. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I think let's spend a little bit of time talking about the mechanism that has generated the kind of prosperity that has lifted so many of us out of uh, poverty, but that so many people are so oblivious to. Uh, I had a conversation with Nick Hudson not so long ago, and he gave me a piece of advice that I thought was really, really timeless. Um, so I was asking him about, you know, what kind of books he would recommend an individual such as myself or another individual who might be interested in learning from such people uh, to pick up. Uh, and he said to me, he won't give me... Uh, uh, any title of a book, but what he will do is he will tell me that I should read books that are older than about 50 years or so, but he tries to make it more than 100 years because then those books are, you know, if they're still being read today, it means they've stood the test of time and they've clearly got some wisdom that is ensconced within it. That books that are re that are written now and that are bestsellers today, you know, will wither away in the next few years and, you know, will be forgotten uh, in, in, in the, you know, uh, piles of antiquity. Um, and I think one such or two such books um, that I think are worthwhile talking about, especially in the context of our conversation, are Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which I was very pleased, by the way, to see was on your reading list uh, on your uh, website. Uh, I actually did go back and I read it again. Um, the other book is uh, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, because I think those two books coupled together are at least in part uh, responsible for the kind of progress that we've seen over the past uh, 200 years. Uh, as evidenced again, not only by your book, but by um, Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. Um, so do you think that Adam Smith deserves far more credit than he's getting? Or do you think that people are right to criticize him for championing a kind of selfishness, as it were, um, as mm. evidence, or not evidence, but as many people see from uh, the uh, the wealth of nations? Mm. Yeah, I, I think, um, firstly, I have to say that I, I didn't finish the theory of moral sentiment. Um, my, my holiday turned out quite differently than I than I'd hoped, but but I um, but I, I think you know more generally I think it's it's very true that Adam Smith firstly is seen is is pigeonholed a bit as like you know this free market uh, uh, um, kind of revolutionary almost, um, and that's certainly not who he was and and what he what he had written. Um, I, I think there's m much. To be gained from from reading his books, I think it's not they are not easy reads. So so I wouldn't necessarily you know uh, prescribe that to a to an undergraduate student necessarily. Um, but but I do think there are um, a, a lot of uh, very useful um, uh, ideas that we forget about pretty easily. In, that are that are ensconced, as you said, with within those kind of older literatures, um, and and we tend to kind of reinvent the wheel quite often um, and forget that actually these these issues um, have been issues for, for for much longer than you know our generation or even the generation before us, and so there is much wisdom to be gained in reading the older the classics. Um, they are not 
you know they're written in a different language than than than, uh, than what we are used to so so they are more difficult i think um and, and someone reading them for the first time might find them very difficult to just uh extract the, the kind of meaning um than by reading the kind of a, a more recent book um but i do think in terms of the kind of adam smith um kind of worldview there are the way he sees kind of progress is really I mean he is considered the father of economics for a reason and and the way that he sees the market being kind of central um not under uh playing the role of the state so i think that's what many people that don't read adam smith think adam smith's right right uh, is that that the, there's somehow no role for the government that's certainly not true right even if you just think of how he explains the importance of infrastructure, the the need for the government to to actively uh, contribute to you know public goods um, uh, creation is clear in his writing in, in the Wealth of Nations. So it's not it's not this you know libertarian view of the world, but the centrality I think of the market and especially I think uh, key is the the word competition, right? The importance of comp of a competitive market is is vital and i think we somehow miss that point so when we when we think of you know, broadly speaking capitalism most people i think when they broadly speak of capitalism they think of these big oligarchic firms or monopolistic firms that's not the kind of capitalism that adam smith envisaged right uh, he was very much aware that big business have big problems as well as to right, the, uh, the overreach of the state that can also have big problems so he very much uh, had this idea of a of a competitive market where the price right mechanism would signal you know the would basically uh, match consumers to producers and the signal the price signal is key in that um, and you know what we should produce how much of that we should produce and and those fundamental um, they, they, I mean, they sound very simplistic to us, but they, that was a, you know, a revolutionary idea at the time. The fact that there is no one that would determine, you know, the price of bread. It would just be a voluntary exchange that would ultimately this invisible hand, right? Um, that invisible hand doesn't mean that there shouldn't be some role for the state, but it, it's the state shouldn't determine the price of bread because then ultimately you never, um, you never find kind of this equilibrium in the market that satisfies both the consumers and the producers. So I think those ideas are certainly fundamental. And um, and perhaps I, I think it was Paul Krugman, right, uh, who, who once said that you can sound like a revolutionary by citing a first year economics textbook. And then some the point really being that, you know, sometimes we forget these fundamental ideas. And, and so we by raising by making a very simple point uh and and then an old i guess point um uh you know we can we can uh we can sound as if it's it's incredibly novel and, and innovative when in fact it's a very old idea yeah no that's wonderful and i think uh just two things from what you've said the first is uh, about the complexity of some of the older texts uh particularly pertaining to adam smith in our case there's a wonderful book uh by i believe it's russ roberts um it's called yeah. how adam smith can change your life which yeah. really i think really simplifies a lot of these concepts and uh, demystifies adam smith because i know that uh in economics and you can obviously correct me if i'm wrong um there's a debate that 
happened, I'm not sure if it's still happening, about the Adam Smith problem, which essentially postulates that there's a contradiction between the Adam Smith of the theory of moral sentiments and the Adam Smith of the wealth of nations, uh, and that he appears more uh, humanist and a more uh, kind of moral philosopher who's concerned about individuals and their uh, in, in their emotions in the theory of moral sentiments. But then suddenly when he writes The Wealth of Nations 20 years later, he's this guy who champions selfishness. And, you know, it's not about um, the, the, the butcher or the baker. Um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, yeah, like when he essentially postulates the invisible hand, you know, it's not about selfishness, essentially, um, is what uh, uh, Russ Roberts uh, demystifies in that wonderful book of his. So that's a book that I'd certainly recommend. Um, and then with regards to the price mechanism that you speak of, I remember I was at the shopping center with my brothers not so long ago, um, and we were just walking down the aisles. And I remember saying to them, just imagine how complex it is to get a, a tin um, it was canned food, the aisle that we're walking uh, along. Um, and you see some of it is made in Brazil, some of it is made in China, some of it is made in Vietnam, some of it is made all over the world. And then I mm -hmm. asked them, just imagine what it takes to get that kind of product from Brazil to South Africa and for you to pay you know, the cheap uh, uh, 20 rands that you have to pay for it. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's staggering. And I don't think they really quite got it until I actually asked them that question and they started thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think people quite realize the amount of complexity that surrounds us every single day. Um, mm -hmm. What do you have to say about that? Um, I, I know Hayek says that a lot of the, uh, or that the wealth that we've seen or the prosperity that we've seen over the past 100 years can be put down solely to the price mechanism. Are you as mm -hmm. fundamental about the importance of the price mechanism as he happens to be? Or do you also think that it's important, but maybe not as important as he claims it is? No, I think, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm quite a, Firmly in the price mechanism as as a way to organize uh, what and how much um, is produced, right? I, I think that is uh, for any even if you're a benevolent dictator, right? If you if you want the best for society, the, the issue is that we just don't have in, the information of people's preferences, right? None of us have the same preference, um, and and in fact, you know, if you if you believe in freedom, right, in the ability of people to choose what they want. Then, then you can never aggregate all of that little bits of information into one, uh, you know, benevolent dictator that then makes a decision of what is produced in society and who is allocated that production. It's just impossible. Even with the, you know, the smartest AI tools, you would never be able to do that. Um, so, so the only way to do that is to, you know, to disaggregate that information or to empower people from at the individual level to make those decisions themselves and to react to what is available based on you know their budget and then the prices that they have to pay for their goods um so that you're you're in, indeed incredibly right that you know what we've gained is this incredibly complex world interdependent world where we uh, benefit from the comparative advantage of different places to produce the things that they're good at and that then um allows us to buy and consume uh, way beyond what we would have been able to if we had to produce and uh, consume or had produce ourselves the things that we needed. Right? Um, so, so the the irony of, uh, or I guess the the paradox of the world really is, is that we've become so incredibly rich by the, through interdependence. Um, if you want to be independent, right? And there's there's a lot of claims now, especially after COVID, that we you know we want country that's independent we produce our own food we produce our own you know whatever um people people have made that argument for almost any industry 
Well, the thing is, if you as soon as you become independent, you also become poorer uh, because then you don't have this, you know, complex world and and interdependence, which allows you to to buy things at a much lower price than what you can produce them yourself. So I think that trade-off is not always very clear. It's a it's a very uh, you know popular thing to say is that we want to be independent, but no individual wants to be independent, right? So why should a country be want to be independent? No individual says, I'm going to live by my own in, again, in kind of some rural area, produce my own food and housing and clothing. I want to kind of, you know, live this autarkic life. Um, well, that the only consequence of that is that you're going to be incredibly poor, you know, no health services, no education, no other kinds of entertainment services. And, and the, the way we know that people don't want that life is because we see that in how they move, right? They migrate from rural places in South Africa to the urban cities, even if those urban places are terrible, right? Even if they seemingly are, um, you know, atrocious living conditions and, and poor health and, and uh, you know, unsafe, we people still move there and so why do they move well it's because they believe that that will give them a better life than where they came from um, and that has been true not only in recent times but throughout history right the, the one of the big debates at the moment actually on the industrial revolution is like you know what caused the industrial revolution uh, or the consequences for living standards and many people claim well it's you know the people were forced into cities uh, at their, in, you know, these Liverpool and Manchester and these kinds of places with terrible living conditions. And so living standards declined. And only after the establishment of trade unions and these kind of things did we see an improvement in living standards. That's just that's just wrong, right? People, it wasn't, there wasn't some kind of forced labor movement or slavery even. It was a voluntary movement of people from the countryside to the cities because their living standards, because it was better to live in those conditions than basically having a life in a countryside which is characterized by very high infant mortality, by uh, absolute boredom, by doing exactly the same thing, by women for being forced basically to, uh, to work uh, as textile workers with incredibly low income and um, uh, you know, trying to take care of, of a large household with, with uh, very meager access to nutrition so um so people moved voluntarily and and so that's really the story of progress right this is we should follow how people move and that tells us what they prefer that reveals their preferences yeah and i and i couldn't agree more uh, i just wanted to pick up on a point that you made that i think uh, people generally tend to overlook or that they don't give enough airtime to um then obviously the idea deserves but you spoke about how um independence breeds poverty uh, and we obviously see that in north korea and in other more closed off societies so i don't think people dispute that but i think another crucial thing that people maybe don't realize is the extent to which uh independence of nations or autarky as it were uh breeds war um and uh, uh you know uh violence uh, as it were because what the uh free exchange of goods and services does um, is it forces nations to be uh, uh, in peace with one another. Uh, there's a wonderful quote, I forget its author, um, but uh, he said, um, we do to ourselves with embargoes what we do to our enemies in time. We do to ourselves 
with embargoes in times of peace, what we do to our enemies in times of war, uh, which I thought was extremely revealing. Um, so I do think that the extent to which, um, you know, the freedom of trade and uh, uh, of, of the, you know, the interdependence that you speak of, um, there's an extent to which it, it, it lessens violence and it lessens wars. Of course, you will get wars breaking out every now and then, but the extent to which they proliferate our world has significantly uh, reduced. And then there's another important thing that you touched on, which was uh, slavery. Um, so I read last year, uh, I believe it was last year, if not the year before, um, Thomas Sowell's um, Economics and Race. Um, and I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine um, who, who just graduated, actually, uh, from political science. Um, but it astonished me that he didn't know the history of slavery, because every time we'd speak of slavery, he would only talk about the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and I mean, it, it, for, for me, there's, you know, that, that misses so much. You know, slavery is such a such an old uh, institution. Um, and I don't think people quite realize, you know, the extent to which um, it, it proliferated uh, our world even before uh, the transatlantic slave trade was actually a thing. Uh, and I know that you speak about it in the book. Um, and uh, this is actually, um, you know, feeding into one of my favorite chapters, which is about dowry and lobola, um, you know, about the, uh, the factor endowments, as you call them, um, and, that, you know, how property rights developed in various parts of the world, given the ratio of land to labor. So could you please just tell us just a little bit about that? I think people will find that immensely interesting. Um, yeah, and just maybe just comment about the lack of knowledge uh, about, you know, the deep history uh, of slavery and it not just being a transatlantic thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There, there are two questions. The first, the first, I'll um, touch on one of the things that you you mentioned um, earlier, which is the the war, right? The the kind of nationalism that uh, or independence leads to nationalism needs to needs to war. So that's certainly, I I think, a very valid point. I, I would almost say that it's kind of true also at a local level, right? So um, I think people forget how. Um, how important the market society is in creating trust, uh, right? So you, trust is the fundamental, underpins basically a market economy, right? I won't be, if I, if, if I don't trust my neighbor or my fellow South African, right, then I'm not gonna go and buy with what is basically a fictitious piece of paper, right? Uh, which people just trust a coffee uh, because I don't know if that person I can I can trust whether this is you know not some kind of poison right that to kind of make it extreme, so um, so we actually have a very high level of trust in in South African society even though we tend to think we don't right we we see the violence we see the mistrust on on social media, um, but in fact the, the the just the pure fact that we can have 20,000 students that don't know each other arrive in a few days time here on Stanamosh campus and we don't expect any violence we don't expect you know there shouldn't be any kind of um you know theft or crime or anything like that that's incredible that you know these people don't know each other at all and yet we somehow harmoniously live together right and of course there are exceptions and the fact that we that, that those exceptions make national news is actually a signal of the immense trust we have in that that they shouldn't happen right um so so that's an incredibly positive story and that's and that's i guess it's true not only obviously for our society but for most societies in the world but it's not true in societies where you don't have this kind of market mechanism where there is in fact a uh, a dictator or a hierarchy of you know leadership authoritarian leadership where 
the only person that you basically have to adhere to is uh, is those that are in charge and you really don't know whether you can trust your neighbor in a i mean ask anyone who's lived in a communist society they would tell you you know you can really not trust your neighbor there because they might be spies right and so so there is this is complete breakdown of of the market mechanism and this interdependence that requires us to be uh, that allows us to be rich um, so I, I thought that's that's uh, you know that's also I guess a, a more optimistic take on the South African society. Um, there are of course things that hurt this trust, right? So violence and crime and these kind of things reduce our trust, and so that's why it's really important to fight those kinds of things. And and of course there are one might make even the point that um, things like social media, these extreme views, break down that trust that actually exists at a personal level, and so thinking about how technology both increases, you know, allows this exchange to happen, but also reduces trust in some way where we see these extreme views uh, being spewed and then, and then how that affects uh, how we view others. I think those are really interesting research questions. So I, I think I just wanted to mention that. And the second thing is, is uh, in terms of slavery. So of course, slavery is an age old institution, right? The word slave comes from Slavic Eastern Europe. Um, so it's not um, something that is unique to Africa or, you know, to Europe. Um, it is something that, that occurred almost in all ancient civilizations. Um, and in fact, it's really only in the kind of, by the, I would say 16th century that you'll find some wealthy civilizations Think of kind of Western Europe, the Dutch, for example, where where slavery is actually outlawed, right? And this is a kind of a unique institution. Of course, it's outlawed within Europe, but it's not outlawed for those countries to uh, undertake slave uh, trading outside outside of Europe. So that's this kind of ambiguous uh, relationship with slavery that the, that many European countries had. But the point is, it is it's an ancient age-old institution, and and uh, and of course, the uh, case for for Africa is that it's it's especially here uh, a an institution that has deep economic roots because uh, indeed Africa is a land abundant, uh, labor scarce uh, continent, and that means that um, that the most valuable commodity really is not land because land is abundant, so it's cheap. Um, you can easily move away from your from your um, you know, family or tribe and find land elsewhere, the, um, the valuable commodity is labor, is, is to, to, um, to work uh, the fields, you need people, and, and there's just a scarcity. You basically, most African pre-colonial societies used um, family labor mostly, but then there would have been um, uh, war or conflict, um, uh, you know, between different kind of neighboring groups, and they would have uh, captured not the land of those people, but the people, uh, because the people is scarce. And so that was a form of indigenous slavery that um, when the Europeans arrived on the coast, they exploited. And, and that's also true, right, that the transatlantic slave trade was is an extreme version of the slave trade. So it's, it's not just a copy of what happened in, uh, in indigenous slavery. It is an, an extreme version of that, and it's of course at a much much bigger scale than than what was what came before. So there is a um, there is a difference between the indigenous slavery of of 
of what happened in Africa and and the Atlantic slave trade. But it's also so that's so that's true. But it's also not that there were it's not that there was no form of indigenous slavery before. Um, these these institutions um, uh, occurred throughout the world and especially uh, on the African continent uh, for for you know millennia. Uh, and of course, we you know you can go back to um, pre-colonial and then you know. Uh, even deeper into history, and you would have find, found some form of coercion, right? So, you know, slavery is, of course, a very specific definition of, of a version of coerced labor, but there's, there's even into the present, present versions of coercion. Um, and so slavery is somewhere on this continuum. Um, and and it, it, these are fascinating histories to study. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, and, and how various kinds of um, uh, policies or, or uh, institutions uh, exploit labor, and you know how that uh, shapes the later later kinds of institutions you've mentioned, uh, the labola, and um, uh, you know how that um, has pre-colonial roots is to me very uh, fascinating, um, a fascinating story to tell. But but I do think um, the the study of slavery helps us understand something about the uh, the process of uh, economic change the process so you know more broadly speaking we tend to think that uh, people get rich through the exploitation of others i think that's very common perception of how wealth is created but indeed if that is the case then if slavery was an institution for most of human history and in fact you know dominated almost all civilizations then why didn't previous civilizations experienced something like an industrial revolution. So, uh, or this miraculous increase in living standards over the last two centuries. It's actually over the last two centuries when slavery has uh, kind of, you know, moved out or become unpopular as an institution and, and, and in much of the rich world has, you know, completely disappeared. Um, we see an increase in material welfare that is historic right so so it's um to say that slavery is required for the creation of wealth i think is is just uh, fundamentally wrong um it's in fact because of what i would say innovation entrepreneurship technological improvement we see the we see the removal of the need for slavery um it's in fact now unnecessary to exploit people to such an extent and that's why we see much higher living standards, not only for for you know the rich of society, but for what we would traditionally have considered the poor. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I like that chapter is because uh, it actually made me think quite a bit. Um, so, how have institutions that developed uh, during such economic uh, uh, times? Uh, or oh, oh, let, let me rather phrase the question uh, in the following way: So, there are a set of institutions such as Lobola and Dowry that that developed as a result of, I would say, primordial uh, economic uh, circumstances. How do such uh, practices and institutions that we know are deeply ingrained in people, how do those institutions survive today, given the mm -hmm. changing uh, economic landscape? Do we still see um, the kind of uh, factor endowment relationship that you speak of in the chapter, uh, you know, exist today in some form or another, or have those institutions? Uh, been replaced by new institutions that have now, you know, been developed as a response to the kind of economic uh, situation that we live in today? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great question. So I don't think, you know, we see Lebola today because of factory endowments. I think it's some, as you say, like a pre-colonial or primordial 
economic you know factor endowment argument and then we see the creation of a cultural institution right and and culture persists across generations even sometimes if those the reasons for the emergence of those cultural factors um changes and so that's exactly what's happening now right so we we have this institution called the labula and I, th I think that's a fascinating area to study because now the economic reasons for its emergence have changed um, but it still persists and it's now has economic consequences in a way that 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 doesn't kind of meet what the original needs for it uh, were so um, you know the fact that for example 60 percent of uh, children in South Africa are born to single mothers um, you know that is incredibly strange right but so and what is the reason for that well surely there must be something about the mechanisms for marriage that reduce um the willingness or ability of people to to match and so the labola must feature in there right it must be so so now it has these kind of consequences for us and you know we we tend to see it as a something of kind of a contemporary issue but it has deep historical roots and, and the question is how do we now navigate this cultural institution in this completely new economic environment and and, and i don't have the answers to that but i i think it's a, a fascinating question and clearly it has consequences for society um uh, i just don't know exactly you know what how i think the question about how how to manage cultural change um is or you know what drives cultural change is a is a fascinating thing that economists are are at the moment actually kind of entering um but it's it's a very difficult and a fuzzy concept of course and so it's it's very difficult to to understand exactly what the mechanisms are uh, but that but the fact that cultural beliefs cultural traits um have economic consequences is very clear so in in this kind of in that chapter i show how economic economic forces or you know factory endowments shape cultural beliefs but those cultural beliefs also now have economic consequences and and if you want different economic kind of consequences you of course need to change those cultural beliefs and how that happens it's not to me very clear um yeah i find that incredibly interesting um and now as you're speaking i'm thinking about so many things i mean i know we're running out of time but i just want to ask this question um is there according to your knowledge um an economic justification for the emergence of religion uh in one way or another or animism as it were or uh, as it was first uh practiced um uh, out in society is there an economic reason for that um uh, because i'd be very interested in uh, in finding out if, if if that has uh you know economic roots maybe not economic in the and in the monetary sense of the word but uh maybe in the exchange uh, sense of the word is there something um that led to uh, um, the development of uh, animism among other things mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, <laughs> this is not my field of expertise, so I should be cautious in saying anything really on, on this topic. But I, I, you know, what does religion do? It kind of, you know, unites unites people in, in, in a kind of shared belief system. And that reduces, so people of disparate cultures or ethnicities or whatever now, that share a common religion um, now have reduced uh, or more trust, so they have reduced transaction costs. Um, so, so again, it, it kind of boils down to the trust. So if, if people 
all have the same share the same beliefs and they they are um they show that through you know certain kinds of behavior uh you know religious religions all have certain traditions and, and rules and, and regulations and the way i show that i'm part of this religion might allow me to uh, uh transact with someone of a completely different ethnicity or language group or whatever uh, but because we have this shared belief system and and my behavior shows that um, we have higher levels of trust and so that reduces our transaction costs so long distance trade becomes much easier if you share the same belief system right? so that might explain why religions uh, emerge and why they then spread uh, because they are um, they are a way of of lowering transaction costs that's just you know one theory there's of course many different uh, theories of, of uh, the emergence of, of religion and why certain types of religion. I'm not you know, also going to say that, that um, there wouldn't be uh, uh, you know, leaders, of course, and, and, and um, very specific kinds of events play, play a role in, in determining which religions and, and you know, warfare and these kind of things. But, but, but fundamentally, I think uh, you could think of religion as a as a way of reducing transaction costs and and allowing um, uh, a, a more kind of interaction beyond just the the, the family uh, unit. Um, yeah, I leave it there. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, and then I think uh, maybe just as a final question, uh, maybe not about the book, uh, but about the economic history discipline itself. So um, what about somebody who, or what would you say to somebody who's listening to this and thinking that, you know, it's a bit like we can sort of fit every historical event into an economic uh, landscape. And I know some people will view that as maybe a good thing, um, but I, uh, and I imagine other people as well who have read Karl Popper tend to worry about this uh, because of the theory of uh, falsification. Because it does seem to me that, you know, it's unfalsifiable. So if I ask about religion, there's a story that you can fit in. If I ask about something else, there's another story you can fit in. It does seem to be unfalsifiable. And we know, uh, if we've read Karl Popper, that um, you know the unfalsification or the unfalsifiability of a claim is a test not of its strength, um, but of its weakness. Um, does that something? Is that something that uh, uh, concerns you sometimes? Uh, mm. Just as it's concerning me a little bit now, or, yeah, or are sure. there other things that we know for a fact developed outside of an economic lens? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean that's a great point, and and there's, there's always this tension between history and economics actually, because the history, you know, the discipline of history is a very much a multi-causal discipline. Economics is very much mono-causal discipline where we really want to, you know, we want to show that it's this one factor that explains something, whereas history is typically, you know, historians typically believe the world is very multi much multifaceted, which it, which it probably is. Um, and it's, so it's, it's very difficult to, to find this one causal mechanism. I would say that the field of economic history um, has benefited a lot from uh, the data revolution and, uh, and um, the kind of uh, move towards better what we know as identification. So to identify this one causal thing or perhaps you know, several causal things, we, we have ways, methodologies now of testing that. And so within the field, um, we we move we are moving closer to the Popperian kind of falsifiability, right? So if I if I have a belief about your you know point about religion, so you know how would we then test this? Well, we would need to find several societies, some where religion emerges, others where 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 there's no form of religion, and then 
let's see if, if, if in fact there's you know greater transaction or lower transaction costs with, uh, within those societies. Now, it's obviously going to be very difficult to find data on on that specific um, example, but but that would be the kind of um, uh, test, right? So in the in the book Christianity, um, and we can then test you know what happens to those places where missionaries missionaries arrive versus those where they don't and see what the effects are and what we find basically is that in those places where missionaries arrive those people are more prosperous today than um, where they don't and of course you have to think well is this a pure natural experiment because maybe the missionaries went to the nice places and they were really rich and we have ways to kind of uh, think about that and make and take care of that uh, but the, and then the question is, why is it that, you know, is it, is it the fact that Christianity makes you wealthier? Um, you know, there are certain scholars who've said that before. Uh, but what we kind of see is that it's actually that these missionaries don't only uh, bring, you know, they don't only convert souls, they don't only bring the religion, but they actually also teach people to read the Bible. And, and it's the literacy that seems to, to make the big difference. Um, and so, and we know that, you know, education, human capital creation is is a cornerstone of, of economic growth. And so so that fits again into an kind of economic theory that we understand. So um, so the point really is that, that, that they, we have our theories about how the world works, um, but increasingly we have the ability to test those theories in the kind of Popperian world where we have a control and a treatment group and we can actually see what the what the effects are and, and you know prove or, or, or uh, confirm our theories or, you know, say, dismiss them and say, this is clearly, this is clearly not wrong. And, and now we need a new theory. You're hugely, hugely insightful. Uh, Prof, you know, we could go on speaking like this for a very long time. I've just checked and we're running out of time now. Um, so uh, maybe just as a final word from you to the potential reader of the book, um, what is it that you would hope for people to get out of the book? Uh, in other words, why do you think people should invest their money in buying the book? Um, is there anything that you think in particular um, they should expect from getting the book? Or yeah, what, what exactly were you trying to relay other than what we've obviously just discussed over mm -hmm. the past 50 minutes? Mm -hmm. I, I think people have a very specific view of history as like um, just a lot of facts, right? And sure, there are there are some facts in the book, but it's to me it's more about understanding the why we are where we are so it's not like you know the book i i you know had lunch recently with with someone who couldn't understand that i've written a book on global history covering all time periods and it's you know it's only 200 odd pages right that's that's impossible he said to me well sure i don't cover all you know civilizations and all kind of kings and prince you know that's not the point it's not it's not to write the history of the world it is really to help us understand how we came to where we are today um and and in that you know i think economics matters a lot understanding the the economic forces that drive us to um the last two centuries especially in creating this immense prosperity and so it's really about, and I, and I do that not just by kind of rehashing economic theory, but really trying through some you know anecdotes and then some statistics to show um, the kind of lessons of of the past, things which went well, places that that prospered, but also places you know you mentioned Argentina to bring us back to the start of the conversation, places that you know seemingly had 
everything going for it and then fell behind and stagnated. Um, so, so I think those are, um, and, and I think, you know, the feedback that I get from readers is that it's, it's something that they, they didn't expect. Um, it's, it's a book where I think many people go in with the idea that it would be just a lot of history and sure there is a lot of history in it, but it ultimately it's far more about these kind of lessons, these economic theories applied to, to real, to the real world. Um, so, so, you know, this is continuously updated. There's already a new version that, that will come out, uh, probably next year. Um, there's an Afrikaans book coming out in the next couple of months. Uh, hopefully there will also be a Corsa translation soon. Um, and every time there's a new issue, there'll be an update because, you know, this is a, this is a vibrant and dynamic discipline. There are new theories about how the world works. There are new tests for previous theories that either again, you know, support them or, or dismiss them. Um, and so it's a dynamic process and, and that to me is what science is all about. Um, and so we, we keep on learning about how the world works and hopefully that has application also for contemporary policies for if we think about you know, how to solve some of the major issues today, um, then lessons of the past and what worked, what didn't, in what context did it work can help us um, solve this. Yeah, absolutely. Winston Churchill uh, phrased it as follows. He said, uh, the further back we can look is the farther forward we can see. Uh, and I think that's a very good synopsis of the entire book. Uh, Prof, uh, how do people get a hold of you? Um, if, if they're obviously interested in the ideas, aside from buying the book? Uh, I know there's a website, but I'm not sure I quoted it correctly earlier on when I was talking about it. But how do we find you on your website? And how else, um, if there are any other avenues that you're available, can people get a hold of you? Yeah, um, I, so I last year started a Substack account. Uh, it's just johanfree.substack.com. And Substack is a, is a wonderful platform where kind of authors share their, their writings. And every Monday at 10 o'clock, I have a, a post that goes out to uh, you know, several hundred followers. Um, and those can be my columns on News24 or Report, or they could be just um, you know, any, any kind of uh, interesting ideas that I that I share. Um, I also start uh, this week actually by having guest authors uh, contribute. Uh, so that I think on Friday it's a, a guest post by uh, a professor Jan Leiter van Zanden on um, Dutch colonialism and slavery. So I think that should also be fascinating to readers. Um, uh, but they, you know it's free to subscribe and and uh, it's called Our Long Walk, which is of course the reference to to the book. And it's trying to keep this conversation, um, uh, you know, updated and, and current. Um, so uh, listeners are more than welcome to subscribe. And um, I hope to see many, many of them do so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll make sure to uh, put all the details in the descriptor of this video so that people can obviously get a hold of it. Uh, Prof, I cannot thank you enough. It's been, I think we've redeemed ourselves. Uh, and I'm very, very happy about how this conversation has gone. Thank you so much for making the time. Cool. It's great to be here and good luck with the rest of the, the series. Thank you so much, Prof.